Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Securitisation Matters podcast. This is David Addis. Today we have the audio from the Australian Securitisation Forum's evening series held on Tuesday the 12th of February 2013. The topic was the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision's consultative document, which was released just before Christmas 2012 and for which submissions are due by 15 March. The ASF is proposing to do a submission and has retained Cygnus Advisory to assist in the compilation and drafting. The session includes a panel discussion with Dom Degori from ANZ, Stephen Maher from Macquarie Bank, and me, David Addis. The audio was recorded on a handheld recorder, so it's not the best, but it should be good enough. The voices you will hear are, in order, Chris Dalton, the CEO of the ASF, introducing the topic, Laura Sheridan-Mouton from Clifford Chance setting the scene, and then me, Dom Degori, and Stephen Maher. A copy of the presentation is available on the Cygnus Advisory blog. Although the slide numbers are not mentioned, it's reasonably easy to follow which slide is being discussed. So now, over to Clifford Chance in Sydney and Chris Dalton to begin. My name's Chris Dalton and welcome to the first of the ASF's evening series for 2013. Uh, Tonight we've got uh, a bit of a double header. We're going to tackle, uh, with a panel discussion, the recently released uh, consultation paper put out by the uh, Basel Banking Committee, which uh, was released in in December, and there was a more recent release of their technical paper in in late January, I think that came out, or maybe last week, early February. And secondly, we'll have an update uh, following the panel from uh, Deloitte on their mortgage report for 2013 and the the key findings from that report. Um, We will have uh, an opportunity for questions with, with both sessions. And uh, it may have indicated that I was going to make some comments around uh, the recent American Securitisation Forum conference, which a number of uh, the Australian issuers and others attended in in late January. Uh, In the interest of time, um, I'm happy to take questions at uh, the conclusion about uh, what the mood and the sort of outlook from that conference was. We did include a note on the, the conference in the newsletter that was sent out from the ASF last week, so um, you know, there's some information there. But um, what I'd like to do now is firstly thank our host for the evening, uh, Clifford Chance. We're very pleased that um, they were able to um, assist the ASF and, and uh, organise this session for us this evening. And um, I would like to also thank our panellists. But to introduce our panellists and the, and the topic, I'd like to hand over to the moderator for the panel and um, welcome uh, Laura Sheridan Mouton to the um, podium um, to introduce the topic and the panel. Thanks. My name is Laura Sheridan Mouton and I practice New York and Australian law out of Clifford Chance's Sydney office. Let me add my welcome to that of Chris Dalton. Clifford Chance is delighted to be hosting this first evening series for 2013 and we very much hope that you will stick around after the seminar this evening to join us for some drinks. Um, It's also my great pleasure to introduce our panellists for this evening's panel discussion. From your left, we have David Addis, Managing Director of Corporate Advisory Firm Cygnus Advisory. David is currently assisting the Australian Securitisation Forum in the compilation and drafting of the ASF's submission to the Baal Committee in relation to the Securitisation Framework Consultation document. David is a past chair of the ASF's Prudential Committee and holds qualifications in Commerce, Law and Applied Finance. To the right of David is Stephen Ma. Division Director and Head of Debt Capital Markets Analysis within Fixed Income and Currencies at Macquarie. 
With over 20 years' experience in the Australian debt capital markets, Stephen has a long history of involvement in investment, analysis, origination, and market de development activities in relation to the Australian securitization market. And to Stephen's right is Don DeGory, an executive director in the Structured Capital Markets team at ANZ, with more than 10 years' experience in the Australian debt capital markets and in structuring securitization funding solutions for issuers. Dom is a member of the ASF's Regulatory Committee and is ANZ's APRA co-delegate for securitization-related matters. In December 2012, the Bar Committee on Banking Supervision, a committee within the Bank of International Settlements, published a long-anticipated consultation paper proposing substantial changes to the methods banks use to calculate risk-based capital requirements related to securitization exposures. The December 2012 consultative document proposes a significant overhaul to the BAL securitization framework reflected in so-called BAL 2.5, the interim post-GFC enhancements to the BAL 2 securitization framework that were introduced in July 2009. It also reflects the more fundamental review of the securitization framework, including its reliance on external ratings that the BAL Committee indicated in its December 2010 publication of the BAL 3 framework that was already in train. The consultation proposals according re accordingly reflect the BAL Committee's objectives of making capital requirements more prudent and risk sensitive, mitigating mechanistic reliance on external credit ratings, and reducing current pro-cyclical cliff effects in which small differences in credit quality or other parameters produced large difference in capital requirements. While the bar securitization framework reforms were long anticipated, the market had anticipated that the pro and the, the market had anticipated that the proposals would reflect high risk weights. The level of risk weighting and a number of the details reflected in the proposals have caught the market by surprise. Our panelists will address a number of the surprising details during the course of this evening's discussion. But to frame this discussion, I thought it would be helpful to highlight the differences between the risk-based capital hierarchies proposed under the BAL consultation and the hierarchy reflected in the current internal risk ratings-based approach. The BAL securitization framework consultation proposes two alternative hierarchies of approaches for determining risk weights for securitization exposures. Alternative hierarchies A and B are significantly different from each other and they're also significantly different from the hierarchy reflected in the internal ratings-based approach under BAL 2 and BAL 2.5. David, would you like to comment further? Thanks, Laura. I thought we might just uh, refresh your memories on what the current hierarchy is. I'm sure you're all very familiar with this, but uh, the current IRB hierarchy, anyway, has got uh, the ratings-based approach as the first port of call. So, a fairly simple approach. You, if the if the transaction's rated or the exposure is rated, rather, uh, you look at uh, matters such as seniority, granularity, the rating, and then you essentially read off the risk weight. The um, the next one on the list is the internal assessment approach, subject to some conditions. Essentially, the same thing, except you use your internal ratings to map it across to the external rating and then calculate your uh, risk weight pretty much in the same manner as the ratings-based approach. 
The third, and I'm leaving out a lot of exceptions here, but the third one is the uh, supervisory formula approach, which is a formula-driven approach based on a binomial probability distribution and certain inputs. Now, my understanding is that's fairly, a fairly limited use in Australia. Not too many people are using it. Um, but it becomes much more important under the new hierarchies in a modified form. And then you move to uh, some eligible facilities uh, which allowed you a, a certain more standardised risk weight and then you got stuck with a deduction, which, of course, everyone wants to avoid. Thanks, David. Um, now, moving on to the next slides, as these slides illustrate, the balance of consultation proposals reflect not only new hierarchies, but also significant modifications to the approaches within those hierarchies, as David just alluded. In particular, David, the um, modified supervisory formula approach based on the BAL 2 2.5 supervisory formula approach and the revised ratings-based approach based on the ratings-based approach under BAL 2 both reflect a significant increase in the risk weights at the lower end of the risk spectrum. Yeah, we'll have a couple of slides showing this uh, a little bit later on, but uh, you can see there the uh, primacy of the RBA has been uh, usurped by the uh, modified supervisory formula approach. Now, this isn't, once the technical papers came out, which was a week or so ago, this isn't perhaps as big a shift as it might have seemed when we initially read the consultative document. Uh, and the reason for that is that the risk weights under the revised uh, ratings-based approach have actually been modelled to try to resemble the modified supervisory formula. So they should end up with similar sorts of um, risk weight uh, approaches. However, they have different inputs. So the modified supervisory formula approach, uh, like the old one, still takes in uh, the capital under the uh, IRB basis, so you have to calculate the capital on the underlying assets. You then have to apply the tranche parameters, so attachment point, detachment point, and you, you'll come up, with, including maturity, and then you'll come up with a result of the formula. There's a very long technical paper on this, but you can't really model it without knowing what your underlying capital is on the assets. But the stated intention is that it's actually fairly similar to the RBA in terms of risk weights. So the difference between it and the existing supervisory formula particularly is the um, new addition of maturity parameter, which is one they've also introduced into the RBA. So the revised RBA has got a, a new formula, and I might just uh, flick on a couple just to see here. You can see the existing, under this slide, the existing um, capital treatment is the one in sort of yellowy-orange there. goes all the way from a very low number and then has a very strong uh, cliff effect. So as you go down the rating curve, the capital gets uh, much quicker, much more quickly. And below double B minus, it goes even higher to a deduction very quickly. Under the new environment, you've got a higher starting base, particularly for different maturities, and you've got one to five there, obviously one being the lowest, uh, uh, one year maturity being the lowest one and five year being the highest one. So you start at a fairly a higher base but you don't go up quite as quickly towards the lower rated tranches. And this chart shows that effect just for one and five years and for only up down to A minus so you can see it more clearly. Whereas we started with the old 7% down the AAA, we're now starting with a minimum of 20% for one year maturities 
and 58% for five-year maturities. And maturity is based on cash flows, contracted cash flows. So most pass-through RMBSs will automatically be five-year five year maturities, no matter what the WOW is. We've then got there a choice, and it's APRA who gets to choose, or the local regulator, and gets to choose between the revised RBA and a simplified SFA. The simplified SFA is a little bit different from the SFA. It doesn't have a probability distribution, but it does include parameters like um, probabilities of default, so you still need a fair bit of data in order to be able to, to do that. If you can't do these things, and a lot of them, you know, particularly the modified supervisory formula and the simplified supervisory formula, you need a fair bit of data on the underlying assets. And if you can't use the RBA because it's not rated, you go to the backstop concentration ratio. And there's two concentration ratios. This is the more punitive of the two. And essentially, you take the, under the backstop concentration ratio, you take the capital under, the, under a standardised approach, and then you divide that by the detachment point. So just to give you an example of that, if, the, if, you're, if you've got the senior piece, the detachment point will be 100% by definition. So it will just be the capital of the underlying assets. To the extent that your detachment point is below 100%, i.e. you've got a junior tranche, you're then going to gross up the capital of the underlying assets by whatever that detachment point is. So if your detachment point's 50%, you're going to be holding double the amount of capital. It's quite a punitive result. David, the, the methodologies under the BAL consultation proposals are more model-driven than those under the existing internal ratings-based approach. Perhaps you'd like to comment. And, and Stephen and Dom, um, perhaps you can address the revised rating-based approach under proposed hierarchy A in particular. Um, as David alluded, the proposed RRBA reflects inputs based on seniority, tranche thickness and maturity, but it doesn't consider granularity, the diversity of exposures on the underlying pool of assets. Yeah, so the, uh, it is it's definitely more model-driven. As I said before, the, uh, art, even the ratings-based approach is driven by the supervisory formula. Now, I'm sure many of you will have read the uh, foundations of the proposed modified supervisory formula approach technical paper. No? <laughs> I can recommend it for those of you with insomnia. It's, it's a very technical document. Um, we would really need a, d a degree in higher mathematics to be able to actually prove or disprove it. Um, I guess why, where we've been discussing this in, in the past few days is it's not so much perhaps the mathematics of this, but the outcome. Do the outcomes actually make sense in, in, in our world? And I think, you know, there's certainly the immediate um, from most people is it's going from 7% to 58% for a, for a AAA RMDS pass-through seems a, a very big increase in risk weight. Yeah, so I mean, as, as, as David mentioned, I mean, the revised, uh, the modified supervisory formula is a very model-driven approach to calculating capital, and it does require um, a significant number of inputs in terms of the, the underlying assets being securitised. So in a way, it, it potentially limits the, the ability to apply that particular uh, methodology, if you like, to, to more esoteric assets, which um, will be interesting to see how that develops. On the, on the revised RBA approach, again, just, just conscious of comparing, I guess, what BIS has put out versus the, the US, there is no mention of a revised RBA methodology under the US regulations. So within the BIS paper, for those that have read it, there is a talk in terms of uh, you know, cancelling arbitrage opportunities and like, yeah, 
interestingly, here we, here we sit with two different regulatory approaches between the US and potentially the rest of the world. So again, interesting to see how that pans out. Um, again, within the, the BIS paper itself, there's an enormous uh, talk or, or, or section, if you like, um, indicating a, a willingness or a, a desire to move away from a reliance on ratings. Yet, with the revised RBA approach, they actually require two ratings um, for you to apply that methodology, which is an interesting development. I mean, it's difficult enough dealing with one agency, let alone two on every deal. Um, but again, when, when they're trying to remove reliance on ratings, introducing a requirement for two ratings is, is unusual and, I guess, you know, difficult to understand the benefits of, of doing that. Um, the other interesting point, perhaps, to note is the fact that BIS or BAL, if you like, is looking to remove arbitrage between standardised and advanced banks. And so one key change from the, the current RBA approach is that risk rates would apply the same to both standardised and advanced banks. Um, it's this one-size-fits-all methodology which, which we can see, um, you know, find its way through the paper in a number of circumstances. Very hard to add to what both Don and David have already said so far, but just picking up on the comment about rating agencies, the requirement for two, two rating agencies to actually um, rate, rate the assets themselves, one of the things that strikes me as a bit unusual, and this is when we look at the recent actions taken by Moody's, is the fact that the entire process, in, in, in my view, is somewhat dependent purely upon collateral performance, yet there's nowhere that really speaks to um, methodological requirements or method methodological um, structures in, in the actual consultative documents. So there is a dependence on, uh, in a sense, the rating agencies remaining constant in terms of their process and the way, way they go through the ratings process, and they're purely focusing on what's happening to the underlying collateral and, and, and looking to model and work with that, which I find I find a bit unusual, and I think uh, the others agree. Can you comment specifically on the, the fact that the proposals are moving away from granularity? Yeah, I, I haven't seen a lot on that in the papers, but I don't think they found granularity to be a terribly useful concept, and certainly in what I've seen in the past, it's, it hasn't been terribly useful in, in identifying risk characteristics. With Stephen, a, a better view on that? I mean, I, I deal primarily with uh, residential mortgages. Um, always granular. And asset-backed securities, mainly cars and autos. So fortunately, we're dealing with highly granular assets, um, and that certainly works within the processes we're looking at um, today. Uh, but I, I think um, certainly when we do look within our market, and some some of the less granular securities are being brought to market, and I think some of the CMBS are probably more illustrative of that. Um, there are issues with the process in looking at those types of assets. David has alluded earlier, proposed hierarchy B is widely perceived to be the more penal of the two proposed bile hierarchies. Can you elaborate further on that point? Sure. Well, I think the answer is yes, that's, that's correct, um, particularly for non-senior tranches. Where with senior tranches, and so what hierarchy B does is it says uh, you can divide, you divide up your assets into senior high quality and High quality hasn't been defined deliberately. They're um, asking for input on what people think high quality should be. And then the bank gets to choose between either RBA, IAA, or the supervisory formula approaches. Now, of course, there's conditions on that. You can't, you know, you can't cherry-pick. You have to be consistent on what you do and so on. And the... So um, 
<coughs> the RBA under hierarchy B will just be the same as the uh, senior RBA hierarchy under uh, under hierarchy A. It's fairly similar to hierarchy A. But on the other side, anything else is going to get this concentration ratio, and this is the other concentration ratio I referred to. The difference between uh, the, the backstop concentration ratio and the curve concentration ratio is that you use um, IRB capital to calculate it, and then it's just divided by the detachment point, whereas with the BCR you use standardised capital. And I didn't mention before, but if it's a non-senior tranche under the backstop concentration ratio, you have to multiply it by two. So uh, it makes it more punitive. Um, now, there is a possibility in some cases that your IRB capital could be higher than your standardised capital, and therefore the um, standardised approach would, would give you a better result, and the committee's thought of that and uh, has asked for input on how, how people should address that. The one unusual thing is that resecuritizations, which have their own separate current um, uh, risk weights, which are higher than regular securitizations, are not dealt with under any of these hierarchies. They're all dealt with under the backstop concentration ratio. So if you've got a resecuritization and it's not a senior resecuritization, it's going to be very tricky um, because it's going to have quite a high capital number. The, the, the puzzling thing, and I, I haven't seen this in the technical papers as to why, but for non-senior resecuritization tranches, they didn't double it like they did for securitization ones. I really don't know why. But yes, it will be more penal, particularly for non-senior tranches. Now this is obviously all very, very technical material. I think what we'd like to do now is to move into some of the pragmatic implications of the bulk proposals. In particular, the revised risk weightings proposed under the consultation have wide-ranging implications for financial institutions and their investors. Stephen, are you able to quantify the return on equity implications? I can explicitly quantify the return on equity return on equity implications of it. I think everybody would love to know what it might be. Uh, but when we start looking at return on equity changes where the amount of capital required goes from 7% to 20% or from 7% to 50%, it's fairly clear that you might see a threefold decrease to through a sevenfold decrease in your effective return on capital. Now, when we think about who the major investors are, uh, particularly in residential mortgage-backed securities, and banks um, looking at potentially 60 to 70 percent of the market, uh, return on capital is a, a pretty big part of their consideration when they are looking at making um, investments in either residential mortgage-backed securities or other other securitisations. So if you're seeing a threefold to sevenfold decrease on your senior tranches, and that's that's 20 percent through to 50 percent from the seven percent level now, that's certainly something that must be material in the decision-making processes. Yeah, look, just adding to that, I think it's important to make a distinct uh, to distinguish the fact that these, you know, the proposals we see in front of us here are are very much restricted to bank investors, and so the impact is going to be felt by those investors as opposed to real money investors. Now, you know, what will be interesting to understand is how the how this regime, particularly, will find its way uh, across the insurers and life insurers, and whether they will be hit with similar capital implications as per as per what the, the banks will be hit with. So. In, you know, it's hard to it's hard to tell at this point whether we are just looking at a potential bank set of investors that will impact by this proposal. Will this move across to the insurers as we've seen um, impacted in Europe? So, again, on, on typically as you see, if you're looking at an, an instrument which was risk weighted at seven and is going to be risk weighted at sixty, that does have an impact on on that investment decision, and it's likely to have a negative impact. You know, all things remain equal. 
Um, can I ask you, David, to also address the modelling you've done in relation to the potential implications of the bail consultation proposals on total risk-wasted assets of Aussie ADIs? Yes, I mean, uh, my co-panellists have already talked about the increase in risk weight. So I did a, a very basic modelling exercise with some heroic assumptions based on public, publicly available data. It's impossible to model up exactly unless you have all the underlying data, of course. We start. I've assumed when I did my modelling that everything was under the RBA, which it clearly won't be. But I took publicly available data looking at risk weight bands and then applied the new risk weights at them to see what would happen. Now, it's not quite as bad as you might think between 7 and 60%. That's you know, not quite a tenfold increase in, in risk weight. That's obviously mitigated by this, this effect here at the lower end of the tranches. But as between the banks, there's probably all other things being equal, which they won't be, would be something like a two to four times increase in risk-weighted assets for, for securitisation portfolios. Now, I stress that this is full of assumptions, things aren't going to stay the same, you know, nothing's, not, not everything's going to be assessed under the RBA. You know, it could be worse because stuff might be under the con uh, backstop concentration ratio. It might be better. It's However you look at it, it's a fairly hefty number. Just adding to that, we have the existing structure of securitisation portfolios, but we also do have the unsecured portfolios on, on the bank balance sheets. Now, here, for example, we're looking at a one-year AAA um, senior piece with potentially risk rating of 20%. Yet for the major banks, you're looking at risk weightings in their entire portfolio of somewhere between 20 to 30% or thereabouts, based on their little three exposures. So from, from my perspective, going from 7% to 20% or 7% to 50%, not only is a big change in terms of what's happening with respect to your securitisation decision-making processes, but it's also a big change in how you're evaluating your investment opportunities between securitisation and just an unsecured portfolio. Yeah, just adding to that, I think... Throughout, throughout the, the proposed regime, I think there is a lack of understanding in terms of the performance of the securisation is very much tied to the performance of the assets being securitised. And you know, to to Stephen's point, when when you're dealing with a you know portfolio of Australian mortgages that are risk weighted, you know, depending on whether you're an advanced bank or a standardised bank, somewhere between twenty and thirty five, yet you're looking at AAA risk weight outcomes potentially as high as sixty because you, 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 know, you, you, you must ignore things like prepayment, etc. Something about that is inherently wrong. It, either the underlying risk weight being applied to the assets being securitised is wrong, or the securitisation outcome is wrong. And clearly, I think from an Australian uh, perspective, the experience here has been, there'd be, there'd be no experience detailing a risk weight requirement of something like 60 for a AAA rated RMBS transaction, particularly for super senior tranches being put out there with eight, nine percent credit enhancement, where that credit enhancement is effectively two to three times the amount of capital uh, being held by the, the sponsor of that securitisation. So clearly, something has gone wrong when they've looked to calibrate the risk weights of the underlying assets versus the securitised outcome. Well, you've got the mic, Tom. Um, <laughs> if I can ask you about the potential price implications. Um, Particularly, what your thoughts would be on the implications of the consultation with respect to primary and secondary um, spreads, but also pricing for warehouse structures. I don't like the crystal ball often. <laughs> um, you know, and predicting predicting what will happen to primary spreads, etc., 
through through what we've read um, in the paper is extraordinarily difficult. You know, as as we've discussed, there are a number of um, inputs and assumptions that you need to make to even derive um, risk weights and capital charges that could potentially apply. Um, you know, I will note it is it is a moving feast at the end of the day. There's a lot of whilst it's a methodology, BIS has requested feedback on whether the methodologies are appropriate, etc. So whilst the regulators of late haven't moved too far away from consultative documents, um, whether it be on capital, um, a slightly better outcome on liquidity obviously of late, um, it's fair to say that, you know, again, looking at looking at, you know, that chart and the and the type of risk weight adjustments you're seeing on AAA exposures then I think for a subset of investors, particularly bank investors, they will look for higher spreads to compensate the, the compression in, in regulatory in, in return on capital. And again, all other things else being equal. Uh, real money investors, to a certain extent, you know, they're, they're not subject to this regime. It shouldn't have an impact on on their ability to make an investment. But you know, they are aware of how banks risk weight assets and so to the extent when they know that banks need to price deals higher, they want surprise, surprise, real money's going to push things, things wider as they traditionally try and do. Um, so that, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think for bank investors and, and where, you know, with their appetite for primary deals at least uh, in, the, in the near term, I think it'll ultimately come down to the pros and cons of an investment in the liquidity book and the benefits of having a high yielding asset in the liquidity portfolio given the lack of liquid assets available globally versus the, the capital charges that will apply going forward. Just to, to follow on from that discussion, um, I'm, I'd like the panellists' view on whether the impact um, is likely to be purely pricing or if um, we're likely to see demand or appetite implications. I mean, the, the initial impact uh, will potentially be through pricing, but that, um, and I think this is really just elaborating on Dom's comment, ultimately will be reflected through demand. So to the extent that you do see prices come out, I think there will be a natural propensity for real money investors to, for their ears to perk up and potentially um, have greater interest. So if, if we relatively saw spreads move 10 points out, we, we would see proportionally more interest coming through from real money. Now, whether or not that, that interest is going to be sufficient to offset um, a, a possible drop in demand from balance sheet um, will have to be balanced, obviously, by how far, how far the price potentially moves out. But certainly, I think just stressing the point Dom, Dom does make, it's that if, if you do see a reduction in balance sheet demand or a requirement for higher spreads to compensate for the increased capital requirements, um, it will be reflected, one, in the pricing of the securities or, two, a change in the volume of supply for the securities. Just to a point I made earlier, I think, I think what will be interesting to see is how the regulators address these arbitrage opportunities. Um, we are in, we're in a global capital market, so... It, we need to understand how Apple will adopt this regime. Um, traditionally, they've taken a more conservative stance when it comes to securisation than what's been put in global papers. So, you know, we know the backdrop here. Apple are trying to simplify the overall approach, so simplify the APS120 approach. Um, BIS has done anything but simplify the approach. Um, in fact, you know, it is an extremely complex regime with. Now, what I believe will have significant impacts on cost of compliance and the like. It's a very dynam dynamic capital regime um, and quite different to what we have at the moment. Um, but again, if, if looking at you know what we've seen from the US last year, they've clearly moved away from any reference to ratings. 
is there an arbitrage opportunity there for potentially those investors to, to come in and, and fill a void or a gap created by Australian banks' inability or potential inability to purchase their securities because of the risk weight implications. So, yeah, there, there's a lot to play out here before you can make an accurate assessment of, of where we're going to land. So moving on to um, what we think uh, is likely to be the impact domestically. The Bar Committee has obviously indicated that it's well aware of the trade-off between the risk posed by securitisation and its function in, as an important tool in funding and liquidity. But at the same time, there seems to be a continuing tension within the Bar Committee between the imperative to continue to bring securitisation within the regulatory framework, yet at the same time facilitate market stabilisation and continued growth. So while the changes to the BAL-3 liquidity coverage ratio announced by the BAL Committee in January are broadly helpful to the securitisation industry, particularly in terms of regulatory and political signalling, the BAL securitisation framework, on the other hand, reflected in the consultation, takes, as we've discussed this evening, a one-size-fits-all approach, um, which many would suggest is inadequately sensitive to the characteristics of the underlying assets. And I'd be curious for the panel's um, views on this. I think intelligence would suggest that the Bar Committee is not looking to alter the securitisation framework fundamentally following the consultation. So I'd be curious as to whether the panellists would uh, take that view or uh, counter it. At the same time, obviously, though, we need for the securitisation framework to be implemented nationally within domestic regimes. And according, accordingly, we could reasonably expect there to be some degree of political consultation, political consideration with respect to the proposals included in the securitisation framework consultation, particularly given their significance. David mentioned earlier, and you know, perhaps we didn't get the message across, there are a number of circumstances within the hierarchies uh, proposed here that allows the local regulator to make decisions as to which, which approach they're going to take and what they will actually allow. Uh, historically, APRA's allowed at least the advanced banks in this country to, to use an internal assessment approach when, when assessing risk and risk-weighted assets for securitisation exposures on balance sheet. BIS is, is, is indicating that they're, they're looking to take that away or to be um, very much restricted to use in, in asset-backed um, CP programs, which you know we're seeing less and less of across the market. You know, again, we, we need to wait to see APRA's response to this. We need to to understand APRA's approach to the internal assessment approach, their view on um, advanced banks versus standardised. As I said, within the paper, they BIS is trying to to standardise an approach across all banks. So that in itself needs to be understood. Um, you know, we, again, whilst the hierarchies presented here are are interesting, we still could potentially be faced with a circumstances where APRA just comes out and says that regime will not apply to, to Australian ADIs um, and we'll have to respond accordingly based on that. But <clears throat> until we see the, the, the local regulated response to all of this, and you know, logic tells me that we'll, hopefully they'll wait to see you know, what comes of the discussion paper because the discussion paper itself is asking for quite significant feedback on both the methodologies um, and whether they're appropriate or not. So to me, you know, I, I'm hoping and maybe it's the optimist in me that uh, the, you know, the global regulator is open to accepting some type of comment on, on the proposals and, and will accept changes to the extent we see some quite ludicrous outcomes on, on some very low risk assets. Um, but again, I think 
based on based on the local regulators' view on that, that, that could change things quite materially again. Just picking up a little bit on the point that Dom, Dom made, um, just talking about the convergence between standardised and advanced approaches, it's interesting to note the paper that came out from the BIS or the Basel Committee for Banking Supervisors recently just doing a comparison of market risk weights between global, globally significant financial institutions. In that paper, they noted that um, there were quite significant differences in risk characteristics or risk treatment or parameter treatment for quite similar asset classes between global institutions. So looking at the variance that they're seeing coming through global financial institutions, uh, I'm not surprised that um, the BIS would be trying to look to bring some sort of convergence play play, um, into the regulatory environment um, and, in a sense, almost try to avoid the arbitrage or maybe a parameter arbitrage, I think, um, between institutions. Yeah, Dom had mentioned it before, but I'll, I'll say uh, once more that uh, Charles at, at the uh, ASF conference last year, Charles Luttrell, had said, you know, they, they're looking to go more simplified, more simplified, and this is anything but more simplified. In fact, it's kind of ironic because they, they one of the expressed aims is to reduce the mechanis- mechanistic reliance on ratings, mm-hmm. and instead we're substituting a mechanistic reliance on a model. It's quite inconsistent with what um, APRA has so far indicated. So, uh, APRA has previously said their um, the, the international harmonisation is their aim, so uh, I guess it remains to be seen what happens there. Um, thanks, Laura. Um, there will obviously be an opportunity to um, pose questions and have a discussion with the panellists uh, when, we, when we break. Just to sort of, I guess, complete the picture, the, the ASF is uh, currently um, working with a, a working group that Sarah Hoffman from RBS is chairing to uh, develop uh, a response from an Australian perspective to this, this paper. Uh, we are also talking and we, we will be sharing drafts with our American cousins at the American Securitization Forum and also at um, AFME in, in London from a European perspective. Uh, the Europeans did request an extension to the response deadline of 15 March and um, I was just showing Alex we got a, an email this evening back from a, Mr Wayne Byers saying um, the extension will not be um, given but if we wish to delay our submission it will be given full consideration so um, we'll try and keep to our original plan to work till 15 March um, deadline. Uh, we are also in, in consultation with APRA uh, we met with them early uh, at least early in, in January as to what uh, their revision may be in terms of the project they plan to rewrite APS 120 in 2013 in light of this, this consultation paper and the, the time frame around this. Uh, they were giving that consideration and, and we will catch up with them probably in the next week or so as to uh, the direction that they will take. Um, I think the, the impression is that uh, this, this paper uh, is largely focused on the treatment of uh, the capital allocation for risk exposures on balance sheets, so the investment aspects as opposed to the uh, aspects of uh, potential supervision around issuing RMBS. So um, it's going to be a, a pretty interesting year and um, you know, I'd just like to, to thank both Laura and the panel for uh, putting putting out what is, I think, a very complex uh, subject area in a fairly clear point of view. But um, we certainly want to take the opportunity to put an Australian view to, to Baal. Uh, we may even seek uh, an opportunity to make a, a presentation to the, the Baal Committee by way of teleconference at least to stress the importance of this to the Australian market. So welcome all of you to uh, contribute to our efforts and so contact Alex and myself and we can sort of get you into contact with the working group as we 
work on this over the next, um, I guess, literally a month now to the 15th of March. So thanks to, to Laura and the panel. It's, uh, There is plenty of information on the Basel document on the Cygnus Advisory blog, including a memo summarising it, an Excel calculator to work out the risk weights, and links to the technical papers referred to in the panel discussion. Episode 1 of the Securitisation Matters podcast featured an interview with John Barry, the Head of Securitisation for National Australia Bank. Episode 3 should follow this episode closely and features an interview with Chris Dalton, the CEO of ASF, which was recorded on the same day as the evening series. Instructions and links to the podcast are on the Cygnus Advisory blog. You can subscribe to the Cygnus Advisory blog to receive email updates and on iTunes to receive the Securitization Matters podcasts automatically. Thanks for listening.